with Scotch. I'm your host, Ethan Bartlett, and this is my guest, Michael Lilienthal. That's me, I'm Michael Lilienthal. Hi, happy to be here. Yeah, we are both, technically, and I know this is the third time I've done this joke, in rooms <laughs> that Scotch is in. Um, yep. The, I, I honestly don't know what direction, because like, just where we are in life, uh, I don't know what direction to to do this joke in, considering this is like gonna come out what a month and a half after we uh, uh, recorded, right. assuming everything goes to plan. And like, <laughs> like I said, I don't know. It seems to change every day. So hopefully, uh, this time capsule finds all of us well. Um, but, maybe maybe it'll come uh, out at a time when like everyone's like all right stop making jokes about quarantine because it's done now right i mean i think i put in the oscar wilde episode that we did like stop making jokes about quarantine not because it was done but because they had all been done even though i was making jokes about quarantine but here we are um that's very oscar wilde of you yeah. to do so <laughs> uh but we are not going to talk about quarantine we're no. also not going to talk about scotch Mm-mm. um even though one of those two things is in the news and one of those two things is in the title um <laughs> on this podcast we talk about books um, so that said uh we do need to introduce our scotches but then we won't talk about scotch right um so and again because of because of the other thing we're not talking about uh we do have two slightly different scotches um <laughs> uh in front of us so michael what scotch do you have i have the glenn levitt 14 year single malt scotch whiskey with which is the cognac cask selection very good i myself am drinking the glenn Morangie uh 12 year la santa bottling which is finished in sherry casks Mm -hmm. um so that said uh i'm going to invite my wife in to read the rules and even though she will be reading them live in person as she does every episode um (laughs) she is going to read them the exact same way because it honestly seemed too complicated and like too much work to like change the script especially because she's read it so many times she does have it memorized so Mm -hmm. um yeah we're gonna we're gonna just have her uh do it the uh the old-fashioned way so karen Mm -hmm. please rule one once the scotch is poured and the glasses clink the scotch must not be mentioned at any time if anyone mentions it they lose rule two no one's mother should be mentioned in any pejorative sense or any other sense not directly indicated by the text of the book being discussed. If any mothers are mentioned, the mentioner loses. Rule 3. Ethan must never say the phrase, first paragraph. If he does, he loses. Rule 4. Michael must never say the words, vampire, vampiric, or any derivative thereof. If he does, he loses. Rule 5. If anyone has to use the bathroom during an episode, he or she loses. However, this should not stop anyone from doing so because this podcast is anti-UTI. Rule number six. The wives are entitled to one glass of scotch or some equivalent beverage. Rule number seven. If four scotch-centric episodes pass with no losses, then everyone loses. And what happens if someone breaks the rules? If one person breaks a rule, they receive a punishment in the form of a verbal stunt chosen by the person who did not break the rule. All that being said, everyone, drink responsibly. Yeah, Ethan. Yeah, Michael. Gentle Gentle listener. Thank you, Karen. Um, so, uh, let us uncork and core. Gladly. And Schlenk. Lachayam. <laughs> Beautiful. Um so 
this is uh, the first episode in which we will talk about The Sea in the Mirror I... by W.H. Auden. <laughs> oh, was that not I... what you were going to say? I it it was it it felt like what my soul wanted to say if I'm being honest, <laughs> uh, but it is not technically what I was going to say, which is oh. that we were talking about the Dream of Perpetual Motion, a novel by Dexter Palmer, um, oh. which, as I'm sure the gentle listener will hear soon at great length, Michael is also not wrong. <laughs> um, I Darn so right like. On that. If you go if you go to Hulu, I've noticed that lately there's some long running, especially like sitcoms, they have like grouped episodes where it's like not necessarily in release order, but it's in some kind of like thematic order. Like the Brooklyn Nine Nine page has a group called Gina Knows Best that Hulu put together that's just like all of the Gina episodes or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, and I feel that I have been perhaps accidentally, perhaps on purpose, somewhat doing, a, or at least setting us up for a similar uh, possibility like of something you could do with Michael and Ethan episodes, because um, you could probably, even at this point, and with some of the selections I have been uh, considering, and in fact that we have been considering, um, not to foreshadow next year, or our next uh, Mondo book, um mm-hmm. you could do like a series of episodes called Ethan forces us to read 17th and 18th century novels against our will um <laughs> and uh I, I feel that again soon if not now you could put one together that's like Ethan is weirdly obsessed with the tempest um <laughs> or Michael and Ethan are cuz we have we did the tempest the play didn't we we did we did mm-hmm. And of course yep, we did and... the see in the mirror. Oh, duh, because that's we paired it with. Yep, we that. did a pairing of those two. Yep. Yes, and now we have the dream of perpetual motion. Um, colon W W H Auden's the see in the mirror. Uh, <laughs> so yes. Um, Can I? Yeah. Um, so in in our previous two episodes when we were talking about the light between oceans. Um, Ethan, you um, set yourself up as a, a bit of a hostile witness. I don't know that I'm going to necessarily take that tactic here, but I want you to defend this book for me. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, just give me the overarching kind of appeal, summary, impressions. More or less, the, whatever question you asked me at the beginning of those episodes, I'm asking you about this book. <laughs> sure. Um, so I'm gonna when I edit this I'm gonna go back grab my me asking those specific questions and like as we've actually found when editing our drama podcast apparently all that it takes to turn me into you is to like artificially raise the timbre on a on a voice recording so I'm just gonna do that and it's gonna sound slightly weird because I'll have to like mask over the the title of uh of the light between oceans um <laughs> but you know it's it'll work um yeah anyway uh yes on the on the michael and ethan uh, bingo card you can now check or you know put a tile over the square that says michael or ethan uh do a joke about editing that they will never ever put in the work to do um <laughs> All right, so uh, I was sort of hoping and sort of afraid you'd open up this way, Michael, actually. (laughs) Um, Partly because, like, I feel like on the Light Between Oceans episodes, I think the one, like, serious, like, uh, critical comment that um, superfan Nat has uh, uh, given us is that we agree too much. Um, Oh, sure. And I feel like, and that is, you know, very much a uh, uh, fan of the dialectic of, of sort of putting two opposing views together to have them sort of sharpen each other or whatever. Um, and I get that. And I feel like the see in the mirror and or, uh, um, wow, the last really long book we did, Of Human Bondage, uh, mm-hmm. 
probably those episodes came the closest to it um and i feel like we probably agreed too much even in those both of those sets of episodes for nat's taste just if i'm guessing um (laughs) sure but that said uh i basically agree with what i think is behind your your questioning here um okay like i i suspect and will obviously this will obviously become clearer as we talk but i suspect i'm i ended up maybe by a longer more circuitous route in a very similar place to you Um, okay so that said uh defend this book i I think what you're looking for maybe is like an apologetic for this book in the in the a little bit yeah Um, yeah and that's not what i'm gonna do i'm gonna do biography instead autobiography okay um so i was first made aware of this book i want to say i was in high school and um no that's impossible is it was it published too late to be 2010 2010 okay so i was in college it must have been a summer um uh like between years of well if it was published in 2010 almost certainly must have been uh um between uh junior and senior year junior and senior year yeah unless it was between senior year and the first year of grad school but i think it was the first one because i remember being very young and foolish though i didn't know it at the time um (laughs) and you never do uh i i don't know i read this book you know in in some roundup of science fiction that was coming out or something and uh decided that every single thing about this book was like what i wanted from a book um Ah. between the between the shakespeare between the steampunk um between the like it's a genre book but it's also literary and philosophical like all like that's that's just like someone slamming their hands on all of my buttons um Mm -hmm. which actually sounded much more sexual than it did in my head but uh it's not the (laughs) metaphor i was going for anyway um you know gonna cruise right past that and say that i think the reason i say it must have been a summer is that i distinctly remember being at home at my parents home and the only copy i could find of this book um from the library was a uh an audiobook um and uh so i i I remember like filling out job applications or whatever in my parents basement on their computer while uh this book was was playing um and so i i you know listen to whoever i don't remember anything about like the narrator or even what company or whatever did the audiobook but whoever it was did a really excellent job like the um the narrator Mm -hmm. of the audiobook was was very good with with palmer's sort of prose style um and so i listened to that book at least twice on my own and then i think my brother picked it up and and listened to it also and like wasn't that big a house so like i heard i probably heard this book that summer read out loud at least three or four times um before finally getting a copy and uh spreading it to um i think i got a copy read it once and then like gave it to one of my college friends once once college was back in session i don't even remember well the first one might have been my mm. brother and then he may have passed it along but anyway that, that book that like copy passed from person to person like five times um and i think ultimately i don't think i got that copy back i don't know who has my book still huh. uh <laughs> i almost just turned this podcast into a serial where we where we just take a road trip we and track down your book yeah yeah um find the criminal who kept my book um it's probably someone <laughs> i like very much who kept it accidentally but anyway um yeah so uh once i think once everybody back at college started reading it i read it yet again so i think i read that book probably six times if you count count uh listening to it um mm-hmm. and you know i very rarely reread anything even extremely good books like i don't think i've probably reread any of the books yet that i uh 
said I was going to on this podcast, um, mm. even though I fully intend to with at least a few of them. Um, okay, so that said, so yeah, this was a book that I loved enough at the age of whatever, 21, 22, that I did read it six times um, and, you know, didn't get sick of it. Uh, I had not touched it probably since then before um, rereading it for this podcast nine years later. Um, hmm. And that was part of why I picked it. I wanted um, to... Uh, a, I'd been meaning to reread it again, you know, pretty much ever since, um, but had just been putting it off. And now that the now that I'm somewhat older, I did it, it almost piqued my interest more to reread it and see if I got like the same things out of it that I did when I yeah. was younger, um, or if it had what I call um, infinite jest effect, um, which you have not read infinite jest, have you, Michael? By I have not. No. I also have not. Um, so this might be a little bit of a of a mean uh, name that I've come up <laughs> with, but I have to say that I have witnessed from at least three different like very literary people. Like um, one of them was the creative writing teacher that I that I had in grad school, um, and at least at least a couple other people, you know, along those lines. People given to reading you know, very intellectual uh, uh, fiction and enjoying it and not just sort of dismissing things for, you know, stupid reasons. Um, I have heard at least three people like this say that they read Infinite Jest when they were in college and adored it, like thought it was the most brilliant, you know, work of literature produced in the 20th century. Um, and that they then came back to it about 10 years later when they were in their say late 20s or early 30s and wanted to reread it and hated it thought it was just uh you know <laughs> not not drivel i mean wallace is obviously a smart man but definitely that it was you know pretentious and um uh all surface and no depth and and that kind of thing um mm -hmm. and just because both of the type of book that Dream of Perpetual Motion is, and because of um, the way that I've, you know, ways that I've changed and, and grown over the over the years. Now that I'm an old old man at the age of thirty one, um, I I was I had half an eye on the idea that this book might not be nearly as stunning or or mind blowing um, now as it was, you know. Uh, 10 years ago for 10 years ago for many reasons yes. you know and sometimes that reflects on the quality of the book but sometimes it reflects on the quality or on the on just the uh the person of the of the reader um sure you know so it's it's not necessarily it, it could um a third option it could and i don't know if this is the case or not um reflect on changing times as yeah. well yeah just the cultural milieu yeah that's um, true um, I mean, you think of just like with movies like Citizen Kane, like if you're a movie buff and you know movie history and things, that's going to be a really good movie. But if you're not, you're probably going to wind up being bored with it. <laughs> yeah. Or especially even if you know history in general, like, uh, mm -hmm. you know, at this point, you, you have to have a certain level of historical knowledge to have the context for why newspapers were such a big deal. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. Not not that this is not that we're gonna digress into the Citizen Kane cast, even though you have dangled that uh, <laughs> in front of me like a raw steak for a hungry tiger, um, which I'm sure was next time. next time. completely your intention. Anyway, um, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. You're you're right about about that. There's any number of reasons that a that a book can change um, that have nothing to do with the original quality of the book itself. Um, sure. Anyway, so I wouldn't say I quite had the full-on uh, David Foster Wallace effect or, or Infinite Jest effect, um, but 
I would also say that uh, this book is not as, and maybe it is because I still this is still the seventh time I've read it overall, but um, it it didn't. I was more exasperated with it this this read than I ever remember being in my in my reading of it uh, when I was younger. Mm. Um, so I think contained within that uh, uh, narrative are sort of the answers to your questions as far as, well, at least as far as why I felt right. uh, the desire sure. to bring it to the show. Um, <laughs> I don't know if you have any anything you want to say in response to that, or if you want to double down and make me actually no, not necessarily. apologize for this. Um, I think one, one thing as I was reflecting on it in my, my final reflections before entering into this discussion um is i was thinking about what you had said about the the light between oceans and one of your big issues with it um was the um over emphasis on emotional manipulation versus any sort of intellectual study or anything like that and i think this book in many ways is the opposite (laughs) like the exact opposite uh, to the point that, and here, like, this isn't my full review of the book, but I didn't care about the main character. I'll say that. Sure. <laughs> um, I didn't have any attachment to him. Sure. And, yeah, no, I, I completely agree, like, as, because I read these, I read Light Between Oceans and um, Dream back-to-back in that sequence, um, like, in the, in the uh-huh. recording sequence, and um, as I was reading it, I had that exact thought also, that, like, just my thoughts about uh, uh, Light Between Oceans and its um, emotional landscape. This book basically takes its effect from the opposite end of the the spectrum, I guess. Yeah. If you sure. want to create a dichotomy between emotion and intellect. Yeah, I'd, I'd put them more on uh, two separate axes. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> um... Sorry, there's an ambiance outside my window. Yeah. <laughs> it's like super windy. It's motorcycle season. What's so. up? <laughs> it's motorcycle season. <laughs> so. I'm in my uh, book room, which is usually pretty insulated, but it is like super windy here today, and and people are out like doing yard work, so I think we'll just have all kinds of ambiance. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, hey, should we give uh, the listener a chance to uh, read we the should, book? We should, yeah. Now that we're about half hour. <laughs> right. um, hey, listener. Or 20 minutes. This, anyway. one I'm, this one I'm saying, go ahead and read it. Like, I know I sort of told you not to bother reading The Light Between Oceans at this part of the podcast, but this one, this one I'm going to at least say, go ahead and, and read it. I'm not giving my review yet. <laughs> All right. Uh, what did you think? Are you as emotionally traumatized as the rest of us? Good. The support group meets on Tuesdays and Thursdays. Which actually was the joke that when I sent this book around, some friends of, at college I would get, like, every few days for a while I was getting text messages like, I just finished Dream of Perpetual Motion. And I'd be like, number one. What did you think? Number two, the support group meets on Thursdays. <laughs> um, yeah. Anyway, uh, but yeah, Michael, you're you're very much right that that a uh, this book rests heavily on the intellectual. Um, and you know, when I was when when we were talking about light between oceans, my like secret insecurity was that maybe I just hate emotion and only want intellect um but <laughs> maybe you're a robot yeah you know I mean we all secretly think we might be a robot from the future sent back to like reconnoiter humanity uh in preparation for the coming war right like that's a secret fear everyone has mm-hmm, okay mm-hmm. good yeah sounds completely okay, normal excellent um it's so normal I don't even know why we had to point it out yeah uh, anyway, but I, <laughs> if I or anyone uh, does think that about me, um, I offer my reaction to this book as proof that that's not all that is going on. Like, this book 
you know, basically relies super heavily on on uh, the intellect, for lack of a better, more precise term, um, to achieve its effects, and it's also not my favorite book. So, there you um, go. did you have more you um, wanted to say, or should we talk about the main character? Let Let's talk about the main character. That's 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 a a fine place to start. Right. I think. Um, I mean, it. He's first person narrator, right? Uh, no. Yeah. No. Sometimes, sometimes. He oh is. yes, when um when we have like his epistolary portions yes, within the within um, what I would argue is if we're being pedantic a third person framework we have long passages that are first person because he's within the narrative he's writing them down. No, wait. Okay, not to disagree no. with you right outside the gate because I would say the opposite. No, you're you're absolutely <laughs> right. I forgot everything about like the actual framing of this book no because it is uh him saying the whole book is framed as his book um right the whole thing is him recording this and like there's a an explicit portion where he slides from first person yes, to third person yes. um and calls attention to that yes, fact absolutely um, um which is sort of maybe where you have to start with talking about his character right Mm -hmm. um, the fact that he himself problematizes the idea of character. Yeah. Um, right, I mean, it, it being so much framed as first person, but then with that third person snuck in there, I think, you know, to write a cliche a little bit, it, it really enhances the idea of that unreliable narrator. Yes. Um. He's got a line just in chapter 3, right at the beginning, page 10, um, the third paragraph. He says, I am a failed writer. Um, and there he's he's talking about his his place, at, his, his occupation, right, yes. being a greeting card yes. writer. And, um, like, he failed as a fiction writer or whatever, and so wound up with that job. But, I mean, of course you're going to apply that to everything here being the framework of him writing this down, because he's already stated right. that. And so, any aspect of what his character is has to be filtered through that, which I think makes it, in some ways, even more interesting that there's not a whole lot of empathy to be had for the character. Right. Like... If he were trying to win you over, you would expect the empathy to be there to some degree. You would expect him to be a likable character in some regard. Yeah, and <laughs> but like that's also sort of he's just a character you feel meh yes. about. <laughs> um, and that is sort of flying right in the face. And this may be part of what attracted me to this book, especially at at a, a slightly younger age was. Uh, just that it's flying in the face of every like smug um you know how to write fiction uh uh whatever book or or seminar or whatever right like bullet point one of character creation is to give them something to be likable mm. um like even if someone is is a failure or is weak in some way you give them you know Again, like you said, some, something to for the reader to sympathize with. Right. Yeah. Um, so, uh, and that was going to be my response to just your, I guess, thumbnail uh, review of his character, that there's nothing likable about him. I, I have to imagine, I have to think that that is quite intentional. Yeah, I think so too. Um, I, I I don't think Dexter Palmer does show a great deal of skill in writing, and I'm not going to deny that at all. Um, so I think that likableness about the character, he he definitely had some amount of that in mind. I mean, one of the the sub themes of this is the, um, I mean, the tin manification of right. humanity. <laughs> he, 
I mean, uh, Harold himself describes himself as as you know, losing touch with emotions and and being cut off from the magic uh, as he even grows older. Right. Um, and that idea of that ability to have a, a human connection is under the surface of this book. Not even that far. Under I mean, the in some in some places, it's it's almost explicitly called out um I, yeah uh one one place i'm thinking of specifically is uh i i don't know where it is in the text now because it has been a little while since i reread it but um when mm. uh um he meets his sister astrid in the uh um the part of town where you're not really supposed to talk or if you do you're not supposed to talk very loudly and you're mostly supposed to just communicate by these like pictograms um mm-hmm. uh like there's if i remember right in that scene there's sort of a meditation on the idea that uh like it's sort of a reversal lacking the ability to communicate like humans the the most human communication in this neighborhood comes from uh drawing pictures or, or comes from silence or whatever um, mm-hmm. and that astrid sort of doesn't understand that and violates it by uh speaking very loudly and, and obnoxiously mm-hmm. um so you know that that's like sort of explicitly pictured or or drawn it's almost like uh i want to almost say it's like a a milan kundera ish effect where the thing and the symbol for the thing are are um very close to each other like there's there's not a uh Mm. um, what am i there's almost not a metaphor almost the the thing is almost the metaphor that the that it's a metaphor for I got lost somewhere in that sentence, but uh, <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. I don't know. Um, I, I I was trying to find that that page as well, um, where he's talking to her. And, well, and that whole conversation is yes. about sound yes. too, sound waves, and the ability to have things cancel out. Which, like, I remember right. that physics lesson. Um, when like yeah, there's if you have sound waves bouncing around and stuff, there's a place where it all cancels out and in, in some yeah. Anyway, um, and so that that was a really creative thing for him to insert in here and to have in that uh, that connection as well, where they're they're talking and they're not supposed to be you know, all that loud and whatever. Uh, well, and then she takes that and turns that into her her art yes. show. Um later as well which is it was at that art show yeah that's where we yes. meet dexter palmer at that uh, art yeah show. the first art show yeah. um page 159 yeah. there yep yeah the first art show yep uh yeah because then she did also turn that into her art show later yeah. at the end uh, of her life <laughs> <laughs> but yeah that um yeah, so I mean that that whole human connection thing is interesting too. And there was another thing that happened right in there when we meet uh-huh. Dexter Palmer that's um, connected to that as well, uh, where he was in school, I think, and the assignment that they were supposed to do was um, take a copy of yes. The Tempest and cut it yes. up and make a poem out of it. Uh, and then how that was graded was they inserted into the criticomatic thing where yes. there's like there's a person in there who's just like in a drug induced yes and somehow this is supposed to thing. Um, objectively evaluate uh whether this art is good or not right which that whole like little bit there itself sounds very um post-apocalyptic just that idea of um, we want to get subjectivity out. Just cut it out completely, and everything needs to be objective. You're, you're right. looking for utopia. Did you say post-apocalyptic is the um, adjective that post-apocalyptic? 
not I, I don't know if that's that's necessarily what what I what I want to settle on for that, but some sort utopian, of utopia. Sure. Um, it's giver ish. Sure. Oh, okay, sure. I see. Yeah, it, it definitely uh-huh. almost all by itself is almost a uh, you could almost say a litmus test for um, if a person looks at that and sees a utopia versus someone looking at it and seeing a dystopia like both things you could see happening and it would tell you very different things about the the uh the people yeah yeah exactly exactly um yeah but when when his poem goes in and the way he describes it is oh i wasn't even paying attention to what i was doing and the teacher just said oh it looks like you're done i'll take it he's like no i didn't even start it and um the the grade that he got is brilliant absolutely brilliant a plus um which like if there's any part of this book that makes harold winslow an unlikable character like we've already established he's not necessarily a likable character but that doesn't mean he's an unlikable character but this moment is where i'm like (laughs) oh i don't like you (laughs) because it's that exact sort of thing it's like oh i wasn't even trying and i got an a plus shut up um but yeah um but i mean that itself like and that's a tricky thing too where if you have a character in a piece you're writing who writes something and that writing has to be judged by other people yeah within the book like what are you going to have them say if you have them say that they like it then you're bragging about your own writing ability if you have them say they that they don't like it well then, your character isn't as good a writer Either as you that want them to be. Either that, or you can get <laughs> so, accused of false modesty, uh, or it's really just sort or of or false modesty. Deal. Yep, mm-hmm, that sort of yeah. And so, like, that's something that I was immediately very conscious of. But what happens five pages later is you right. actually meet Dexter Palmer. Um, it's it's that five page span here. Yeah, um, yeah. It's almost yes. at the middle of the book too um almost the exact middle very close anyway um and uh dexter palmer hims the character only has a handful of lines in here but at the top of page 160 um we see uh harold's impression uh uh, well it starts at the bottom of 159 uh, Astrid says that he's a novelist. Harold looks at Dexter at his right arm rubbing his le- threadbare left elbow. Harold sees the oaken trunk in the corner of De- Dexter's filthy downtown loft. And of course, he can't actually see all of this. He's just right. like imagining this or something. But anyway, what what you get the impression is, is that Dexter Palmer is describing the room, room around right. him as he's writing. Um, downtown loft with an enormous padlock on it sees the ten th- tens of thousands of pages of handwritten manuscript that fill it he sees the stub of the tallow candle on dexter's rickety wooden desk purchased for a dollar fifty at a rummage sale he sees the short leg of the desk propped up with a 700 page study of phrenology printed during the age of miracles he sees dexter's eyes going bad by candlelight a whole diopter lost with each late night zoons i am working on my masterpiece dexter palmer yells hoarsely disturbing the neighbors he slings a half a cup half full of tepid chamomile tea at the wall where it shatters um like that whole scene right there you get the impression is outside of the novel like dexter palmer did that (laughs) like i can see that happening that's what that he just is at this point where he's getting upset with the the writing process itself and just throws a cup at the wall and it shatters or at least imagines doing that um and so I, I can see it as the sort of thing where he's breaking through some writer's sure. block at that yeah. moment. I guess I've always interpreted um, it as... I don't know if that's... An exaggerated, yeah. like, uh, uh, self... Um, what's the word for when you're being sort of modest? Uh, yes, like an exaggerated... Oh, self-deprecating? Like, intentionally humorously self-deprecating passage um i'm sure i don't know i guess the my main uh um argument or piece of evidence for that is the uh 700 page study of phrenology like that's not something dexter palmer in our world has that's something that it's very much of this fictional world um Though there's there's right. also an argument to be made for your point that 
you know, there's no reason for this extended passage and no way that, like, Harold could know these things unless Dexter Palmer, the writer, is mm-hmm. just sort of divinely intervening and inserting this this uh, um, accuracy and level of detail into Harold's mind. So, yeah, yeah like, right. I, I think it's an interesting idea that, that uh, this is Dexter Palmer, like, coming to a, a, um, a point of writer's block, which I think... I think I've heard that that often happens, like, yeah, roughly the the midpoint of a of a work, um, like that's not uncommon, and mm-hmm. yeah, that maybe he's breaking through his own writer's block by envisioning this world's Dexter Palmer having writer's block. Um, I right, uh, which I, I do yeah. also um, that 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 whole idea of yes. like the divine intervention sort of thing. I wanna I wanna um, latch on to you, that real quick. Before you get there. I just um, before I forget to say it, I yeah. want to mention that um, our friend, our mutual friend Lydia, who we've like gotten so close to having on this show multiple times, and um, hasn't quite worked out. Like <laughs> it, it probably will happen one day, but she was part of that that wave of friends that I mentioned uh, voicing this novel on a decade or so ago, um, and I believe the only like direct response i got when when uh, i loaned this book to her was um her texting me in all caps dexter palmer put himself in his book as an idiot just three <laughs> question marks or whatever yeah that's good um, um but anyway yeah. uh divine intervention Yeah, so this this um, I I think ties into some of the other themes of this book. I mean, it's about perpetual motion, and so the idea of a perpetual motion machine, and there, there's a lot of physics yes. that this book is grounded in. Just that that sound cancellation thing, and then perpetual motion itself, which he ties mm-hmm. together in a really interesting way. Um, but perpetual motion right. is impossible, like because you always wind up with loss in um, thermodynamics and and such there's energy wasted and so you can't get back the same amount or more energy than you put into something which is what perpetual motion requires you need to be able to put more energy in than you're getting out than you're putting in yes get more energy out than you're putting in um and uh so what and even the perpetual motion machine that Prospero winds up creating in this book, we have right, right from the beginning that it's failing, that it's yes, it's yeah. it's descending, <laughs> and and it's it, right. it's not perpetual. So there's there's limits on that already. But um, in the very end, I want to turn to the very end of of the book, page three thirty eight, um, last couple of paragraphs, uh. He says, it's time to put down the pen, time to clear the throat. Speaking is a different thing altogether from writing. The spoken word has different properties and different powers. If I have learned anything from writing down my own tale, it is this. The machines of this place are failing, and the woman and I are here all alone. The perpetual motion engine, as brilliant and beautiful as it is, is running down. Nothing lasts forever. But before this little world falls out of the sky, there might still be time enough for redemption. There is still time for me to say the words that I should have had the courage to say at the beginning. There is still time, perhaps, for one more miracle. And then he says, hello, Miranda. And you get the impression that those are the things that he's saying out loud. Um, Which, like, okay, so the impression of all of this, uh, the perpetual motion idea, you get the the idea of eternity, that this is somewhere that's really timeless. um, And now he's speaking in order to cause a change in order to bring something into being very much like <laughs> right. creation <laughs> right god said and it was uh you know and so and and he calls attention to that fact that speaking is has these different powers and, and such and so um the idea of an external force being able to work on an internal force by right speaking aloud that that divine intervention, I think, is something that Dexter Palmer was using when he was giving yeah, information yeah. to Harold about himself. Um, you know, sure. turning Harold into his <laughs> yes. prophet. Well, especially <laughs> in, in the ways. in sort of the uh, um, um, 
I don't know if you'd call it the older sense or the, the more uh, sort of technical sense of what the word profit means, um, at least as you'd learn it in mm-hmm. you know, most like small o orthodox Christian seminaries, is, is the prophet is just like a speaker of God's word, right? Like, um, yep. yeah, yeah, so the, just a the idea of prophecy yep. is not this like predicting the future thing that um you know probably a lot of people in the modern world would would uh think of first but but that they're literally sort of a, a mouthpiece yeah mm-hmm. exactly um yeah so i don't know uh it it seems in that whole regard with the idea of Harold being that sort of mouthpiece. Um, ultimately, what I think the book is doing is presenting thoughts that Dexter Palmer has and giving him uh, a venue for those thoughts to be sure. had and expressed. Um, the plot is what plot there is, is very secondary. And it even intentionally goes out of its way to exclude any possibility of thought you get to the point even near the end of of the book uh where harold gets this telegram or or whatever from the person wearing the wings and uh says uh, miranda needs you to save her and um i mean that with the whole hero's journey sort of stamp on this that would be the the call to action. I think she even um, yeah. says the words, you're my only yeah. hope. Very Star Wars-y in there. Um, which, I mean, Dexter Palmer is definitely sure. doing all of that on purpose. And what does he do? The very next paragraph, the very next right, chapter yes. is he's getting in a cab to go to work. <laughs> like, deliberately, yeah, explicitly absolutely. avoiding the plot. Um, so, And that's where, like, it's it's interesting but is it going yes. to keep me and reading? I would say is the that, like, <laughs> which maybe that's a problem um, with me. I mean, Dexter Palmer but... is definitely not writing for everyone here. Like, I think um, the you know again, right. I always berate myself for uh, trying to read my own thoughts into the author's brain, but I think that it's pretty fair to say that the person who produced this particular work. Um, is not writing is intentionally not writing work that uh is meant for to sort of appeal to everyone like he has a particular type of reader in mind um uh so you mm-hmm. know that's that's uh that's fair um i would i would say that like yeah if if i was doing a full apologetic for this book and was trying to argue someone into reading it um that the like mm. one of the things that i would it would put in that put in that presentation now um you know from from my perspective as someone who's uh somewhat older and and better read than i was 10 years ago is still that uh, it's very rare to see a confluence of um, science fiction with the intellectual novel like this, or, or fantasy, if you want to um, argue about genres. But it's 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 not unheard of. It's it's been done before, but it's very rare to see um, a a uh, fantasy novel or a science fiction novel uh, so directly appeal to the the uh sort of questions of philosophy and and the uh um uh idea of exploring like what even does keep us reading a story um because you know if you Hmm. and i mean i made you michael continue reading this story so like that's on me but like uh presumably plenty of people have gotten to (laughs) you know that point or points like it and chosen to keep reading and finish this book and um i again i suspect that one of the uh mm-hmm. things dexter palmer would love for you to do um is ask yourself why you did that when he so explicitly violates um 
you know norms of building likable characters norms of uh, yeah you know a plot that goes literally anywhere um yeah so mm-hmm. other like other than me well i mean and like just within the the title itself it, it if there's no plot there's there's no character development that then right. what you have is perpetual motion which ultimately right. what you're saying is spinning wheels um and that yeah, like a, that's intentional he's doing that on purpose yeah to to, to do that so um yeah I'm, I'm not gonna confront your your overarching claim <laughs> that it's it's rare to see the sci-fi things having such philosophical questions um, well I, to be I, clear I might like, disagree anyway i think a lot um, of science fiction is built on questions of philosophy like science fiction is it's sort of an old you know okay cliche almost that uh people who don't read science fiction thinks it's just about laser guns and robots and people who do read science fiction think it's like the most the smartest most intellectual genre that there is um so you know you have Mm -hmm. uh but like a much more typical um science fiction novel uh forgive me i can't think of anything less obvious than ender's game right um ender's game rests on some extremely deep questions about uh philosophy especially for a book that you know it's not considered Uh ya but like the the same text given a few it's used that way and it's sometimes used that way given a few a different year of publication or a different uh um you know just luck of the draw as far as editors go like it that same text could be a ya novel um and but it it literally you know raises these questions of like what is civilization what is um you know what sort of right do we have to defend ourselves uh it raises questions um i guess spoilers for the ending but it raises questions about like if you uh do take an an action that that you might consider evil but you don't know that you're doing it like are you still responsible for it you know um these are extremely deep philosophical questions Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. but uh at the same time um you know page page count and um writer energy and reader energy is also spent on it being you know essentially a thriller novel so you have those elements of of mystery and suspense and um you have a very tightly constructed plot you have um uh you know all of those all of those more for lack of a better term those more genre things to make sort of an exciting effect you know on the on the reader um the the thing i was i was saying is rare is um this idea of a novel that is still science fiction but that strips all of those things out that doesn't even go for them that uh is Mm. borders on using science fiction as a an intellectual game or an intellectual rumination um to have sort of the dials pushed so far along those respective axes that's that's the specific thing i was saying was rare um yeah got it okay all right i you can, I, I, you can I still disagree I if you want but um i think some of that itself um Um, I, I think, uh, some of, some of that, um, the, the framing, the, the device of this book itself, just even denying common novel structure in a lot of ways. I think some of that, because Dexter Palmer is a PhD in English. Um, I, I have to imagine he is intimately familiar with a good deal of Shakespeare's writings. Um, including the Tempest, if not especially so, and I suspect that a lot of that is informed by the Tempest itself. Uh, it's when we talked about the Tempest, we we noted that like the plot itself is really right. just 
created by a character. Um, it's it's all invented and pushed along, and the resolution itself doesn't come to your typical sort of resolution. I think we, we mentioned that, okay, here's where the plot's going to happen, that someone's going to go and try to attack Prospero, and that's where the conflict is actually going to arise, but Prospero totally just ushers that off to the right. side and yes. it's like no that's not <laughs> i'm not worried about that right <laughs> this, I'm, I'm teaching a lesson or something um and so in that regard itself this book does become in many ways right. a commentary on the tempest i think which is why i made yeah. that joke about the sea in the mirror um <laughs> I, I i don't think it's actually far off because the sea in the mirror is a poetic criticism of the tempest and dream of perpetual motion i think is yeah. a novelic and reading it this time um the tempest possibly because we had i had read the sea in the mirror i want to say i read it a couple times within um sort of a short time of each other between reading it myself first and then bringing it for the podcast um and those were relatively recent like at times reading the dream of perpetual motion i was tempted to just like chart the ways that it is a reading of the tempest because you really could um do that i suspect we won't get into it too far but like mm -hmm. uh you know as as with a lot of books if we if we had a secret third episode um we could just devote an entire episode to like charting the ways that this mm -hmm. is is sort of grafted onto the tempest mm -hmm, mm -hmm. um i i did uh i can't remember if i actually wrote it in the margins of the book or not but i did do a little bit of charting of how especially the last bit oh should sure. be layered on the sea in the mirror itself uh, oh, with sure, the, sure. the three storytellers that he meets um they really do kind of reflect the three parts yeah, of see in the mirror um in many ways although i think the first um, two if i remember correctly are actually well, reversed he, I mean, he, um yeah the first two are reversed like, but well, we can Palmer, talk about that later something you can't just <laughs> can't just follow anyone directly um, I, uh, as you we were talking about right, this, the right. place I thought you were going to go, um, is to mention that, as we probably said in the Tempest episode, uh, it, it's one of Shakespeare's few plays that follows the unities, um, so this old Greek idea that a play should take mm. place roughly in real time in one location, and, um, I forget what the third unity is, uh, I guess it's unity of action that all the all the actions should sort of be part of one I I forget anyway um and mm -hmm. uh I wonder if there's a connection between that and the fact that this book is is so fragmented um that you know the Palmer mm -hmm. probably felt like he had a choice between either following the sure. unities himself or going hardcore the opposite direction, and um, and it makes sense for the for the themes that he's exploring. But he did kind of pick that second one. Um, anything else sure. you want to say, pressingly, before yeah. we finish up this this one? The only thing that I, I might want to comment on is um, that my my feelings upon reading this book um, are to an extent similar to my feelings oh, sure. upon reading uh, Night Circus. Erin Morgenstern. By, um, what's her name? Um, yep, yep. Um, anyway, uh, when I read that, I was like, this isn't a novel, it's an event. <laughs> and... Uh, I know that's maybe a little bit um, sure. questioning of the semantics, maybe, um, but uh, it, I, I think there ought to be room to labeling books more than sure. um, novel. 
<laughs> um, because if we have sure. a book yeah, that's not is, nonfiction, it's a novel. That's that's like the and that's not always the generic nomenclature that publishers that's, have that's, sort of come down on, and it's it's self perpetuating, right? Because at this point, if yeah, you publish something that is fictive, and you call it anything other yep. than a novel. Um, you're either gonna make people confused or make them call you pretentious. Um, the, though, though at the same time right. you, which I was gonna say, but here's here's yeah, yeah. Here, here's here's my thing about that 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 potential dual outcome. There is Dexter Palmer is I think exactly the sort of person who would not <laughs> mind being called pretentious I, and I should have taken that leap on that matter. <laughs> um, and I don't. Yeah, or again, yeah, that or could have been an editor's a decision. Decision, like someone along the line could have said, "You have to call this a novel," or you know, sure, or else. Um, but yeah, <laughs> but I, uh, I don't think or you're else. wrong, and this inspires me that maybe we'll open up our next episode with some Northrop Fry, um, my favorite literary critic, oh boy. fast food. I was trying to do a fry pun. I'm not. Try, I'm not saying Northrop Fry is is uh, <laughs> is bad. Um, anyway, on that note, uh, gentle listener, um, please read along and give us your feedback regarding mm-hmm. the Dream of Perpetual Motion, or indeed anything else. Um, you can go to the contact section of tapestryradio.org. Be sure to put Scotch Talk in the subject line. We are at Room with Scotch on Twitter. I am at Bjartlet on Twitter. That's B-J-A-R-T-L-E-T-T. Michael? I am at M-G-L-I-L-I-E-N-T-H-A-L on Twitter. And yes, my <laughs> name um, does include the word lie. Uh, Ian, you, you can join the Tapestry Radio Tap House. On Thank Facebook, you. <laughs> you have to request to join, but we will let you in unless you are Brasbro Talligent. Um, we will also do your homework. We don't promise to do it well, but we do condone <laughs> plagiarism because we get to laugh and you get to go to plagiarism jail. Um, so go to our website, tapestryradio.org mm-hmm. slash scotchcast. There's a form right at the top. It can be current homework, it can be past homework, it can be future homework, I guess, but how did you... How did you know? Um, if you like this podcast, check out our other shows on the Tapestry Radio Network, including Intermission, our uh, audio drama podcast, including Us Play Fiasco, in which Michael and a rotating cast of others play um, the... Is it an RPG? Is that technically correct? The RPG Fiasco, which is a... Yep. I guess a GM-less RPG in which um, the players collaborate to tell a story that sort of ends up being like a zany Coen Brothers movie style um, uh, deal, usually. Uh, <laughs> oh, okay. okay and well, I'm not even always in it, so it doesn't even um, always include me. <laughs> go only listen to the episodes that Michael is in uh, of <laughs> Fiasco. Um, there's also Pokemon Rollout, our Pokemon United real play tabletop <laughs> RPG podcast. I think I said all the words. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Um, and finally, you please did. Rate that was good. Us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, since we don't pay to advertise, that's how others can learn about us and enjoy what you enjoy. Um, I do a webcomic called Pinporter Girl Detective. That's pinporterdetective.com. Mm-hmm. Um, if you like good art, if you like film noir, if you like fairy tales, um, it has all of those things. And also, I write words for it. Um, yeah. Anything else from you, Michael? Mm-hmm. All right. Uh, then until next time. Not from just me. Just remember, it's our party, and uh, we'll cry if Prospero throws us one. Obscurantism and Obfuscation, 
orally observed, gentle listener. Gentle listener. Gentle listener. Gentle listener. listener. Obviated objects of oblivion. Obambulating about. Offered unto you. Offered unto you. Offered unto you. In the Tapestry Radio Network. Tapestryradio.org. From From our our fancy fancy to to yours. yours.